97.1 FM, The Drive presents the Behind the Song podcast, taking you deeper into classic rock's most timeless tunes. Here's your host, Janda. Hey, it's Janda, and this is a look back into surprising moments over the past year from Behind the Song episodes, tidbits about the music and the history and the lyrics. First up, from episode number 71, the accidental lyric in Guns N' Roses' Sweet Child of Mine, a song written by Axl Rose for his girlfriend at the time, Erin Avery. When the song ends with the line, where do we go now? We're left thinking that that's about wondering if the relationship will be able to sustain, as so many others in Rose's life hadn't. But it was partly a studio accident. When the band rehearsed and recorded it, at one point, the line came up as a real question. Where do we go next within the context of this song, as they were playing it? It's one of the happy accidents that makes rock songs so interesting. Similar to how the stutter in BTO's You Ain't Seen Nothing Yet was also unplanned. That's rock and roll for you. Next up, when I dove into the lyrics of Boston's foreplay long time and the incredible history of how Boston mastermind Tom Schultz really pulled the wool over the record executive's eyes to make Boston's debut album sound like he wanted it to. A sleight of hand that he played with the producer, with drummer Jim Mazdia, and with singer Brad Delp. You told me that you loved this story. The record label pressed Schultz to re-record the demos in a professional studio, which of course did not sit well with Schultz. He knew the amount of work that went into recording those songs, and he was none too keen to record them any other way, especially under pressure from executives in an unfamiliar studio environment. So he came up with a plan to fool the executives. He and producer John Boylan sent the rest of the band to Los Angeles to make the record label think that they were all hard at work re-recording the songs there. When in reality, Schultz was toiling away at his own home studio in Boston, re-recording most of their debut album, playing all the instruments himself with the addition of Mazdia, who the label had fired, back on drums for the song Rock and Roll Band. Schultz and Boylan arranged to get the tapes to Los Angeles. Delp added the vocals in the studio that the label had booked there, and Boylan mixed the album, all of which the executives at Epic were completely in the dark about. And of course, Schultz's trick worked, because Boston's debut album was one of the most successful and best-selling debuts in all of music history. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Next up, 
episode 60 was about Stevie Nicks' song Leather and Lace from her debut solo album Belladonna. Lots of folks were surprised to learn that she originally wrote the song for someone else, a pretty famous country singer. It's hard now to imagine anyone else but Stevie Nicks and her one-time boyfriend, Don Henley, sharing verses on the song Leather and Lace. But that's not how the song started out. Waylon Jennings, the outlaw country star who turned the Nashville music business on its ear several times over during his long career with his resistance to what he considered to be the confining aspects of country music, was a big fan of Fleetwood Mac and of Stevie Nicks' songwriting in particular. In fact, back in 1978, he and Willie Nelson recorded a cover of Gold Dust Woman for the Waylon and Willie album, which was a number one album on the country charts for 10 weeks. And it was not the first or the last time Jennings would reach into the rock world for song material. Jennings was at the height of his fame at this time and had previously asked Nicks to write a song for him that could be sung as a duet between he and his wife, the singer Jesse Coulter. Nicks agreed and spent a lot of time putting together the lyrics for Leather and Lace as a duet between a man and a woman who were involved together and who were performers, a duet between singers in bands, and how hard it could be to maintain relationships under the spotlight, a subject that Nicks knew all too well. The song was written during her time dating Don Henley and finished with Henley's insistence that she keep at it and not give up on it, according to Nicks. And by the time she did finish the song, a surprising thing had happened. Jennings and Coulter had split apart, due in no small part to Jennings' well-publicized drug abuse. So Stevie Nicks kept the song for herself and asked Don Henley to duet on it with her, and the rest, as they say, is history. And speaking of Don Henley, lots of folks were surprised to find out that he didn't write The Boys of Summer, and it was actually written by Heartbreakers guitarist Mike Campbell, and intended for Tom Petty to put lyrics on and sing. I got into that story in episode 73. Campbell put the music together for a demo and played the music for Tom Petty and producer Jimmy Iovine and was discouraged when they both were underwhelmed with what they heard. Iovine suggested a change to the chords in the chorus to make the demo sound a bit more uplifting, which Campbell did. Little did he know that Iovine had something else in mind for the song. And Campbell was surprised when he suggested that he should try to play it for Don Henley, who was looking for songs for his new solo album. At the time, Petty was preparing songs for the Heartbreakers album Southern Accents, and Campbell, knowing that if Petty liked what he heard, he would have said so. So he agreed to play the demo for Don Henley, and he did at Henley's house. He left not knowing if anything would happen with it, and was surprised to get a call later from Henley who told him that he had just written the best song of his life to the demo that Campbell had recorded. When The Boys of Summer was released in the summer of 1984 as the lead single on the Building the Perfect Beast album, it went to number one. And Tom Petty reportedly did regret passing on that song. And then there was episode number 58, a deep dive into Where the Streets Have No Name, a fan favorite from U2's incredible album, The Joshua Tree. It wasn't a song that came about very easy, and it almost drove producer Brian Eno crazy. There are so many weird time changes, echo effects, impossible patterns, and rhythmic couplings in Where the Streets Have No Name that it almost was destroyed. Brian Eno, 
who co-produced it with Daniel Lanois, was physically stopped from scrapping all of what he called the screwdriver takes, painstakingly recorded in parts and pieces by Flood and fellow engineer Pat McCarthy, because Eno was so frustrated with it, and in a fit of almost madness, decided that it would be better just to start the whole thing fresh. The story goes that Pat McCarthy caught Eno attempting to erase the takes when he came into the control room at Windmill Lane Studios in Dublin with a tray of tea. And then seeing that, spilled the entire tray on the floor in his effort to get Eno to stop what he was doing. Over 40% of the total studio time spent on the Joshua Tree album was spent on getting this song completed. And speaking of producers, there was that moment when Georgia Rockers, the Black Crows, who at the time called themselves Mr. Crow's Garden, got into it with Rick Rubin, who suggested a name change for the band that really offended lead singer Chris Robinson. This moment is from the episode about the lyrics and history of She Talks to Angels. The subject of the band's name change is interesting. The story goes that Rick Rubin did not like the band's original name and thought it would be provocative if they changed it to something that could be shortened to allude to an ugly side of the history of the band's home state. Rubin suggested they rename themselves as Cobb County Crows, each word starting with a K, which would then be shortened to KKK, suggesting that the name would grab people's attention. This did not sit well with the Brothers Robinson. And Chris Robinson shot back that it would also get people's attention if the band beat Reuben up for even suggesting such a thing. Fortunately, Reuben backed down and they eventually morphed into the Black Crows. In episode 62, we learned a surprising fact about Paul and Linda McCartney's Uncle Albert Admiral Halsey, a quirky little song from the Ram album released in 1971 the second solo effort from McCartney after the Beatles broke up. When the song Uncle Albert Admiral Halsey was released, it became Paul McCartney's first number one hit on the Billboard chart as a solo artist. This wonderfully odd song that was described by some as an interesting hodgepodge of sounds and by others, including the writers at Rolling Stone, as virtually unlistenable, rose to number one. The song and this album represent some of Paul McCartney's most experimental work. And at times you feel like you're listening in on someone else's private conversation. It's that intimate. But it struck a chord with fans, and eventually the critics had to agree. Paul McCartney had, once again, arrived. And finally, from episode number 66, a deep dive into the lyrics and history of Cheap Trick's Surrender, many fans were delighted to learn that April 1st holds special meaning for the band, the most famous band out of Rockford, Illinois. And it's absolutely perfect that in 2007, the state of Illinois named April 1st, April Fool's Day, Cheap Trick Day in the state. It could be none more fitting that a band that rose to stardom and raised our spirits with their incredible songs and live shows be anointed on a day that speaks to their wonderful sense of humor as well. There are so many awesome moments in rock and roll history, so many things to learn and share. Thank you for being a part of Behind the Song this year, for listening to the episodes and commenting on them and sharing them around, and for being a part of the Behind the Song family. As always, special thanks to Christian Lane for the music you hear on these podcast episodes. 
I'm Janda, and on the way, more episodes about the lyrics and history of classic rock and roll.